The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. The following program is a PodcastOne.com production. He's a world champion wrestler, best-selling author, actor, and lead singer of Fozzie. Now, now he's rocking the podcast world. Marvelous. This, this, this is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Starring Chris Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. This is the pot of thunder and rock and roll. Yeah! The remedy for boredom has arrived and we are so happy to have you here with us this week. So many cool things going on. The Oscars. Awesome to see Jared Leto win an Oscar. Not only did he win an Oscar, but he's also the lead singer of 30 Seconds for Mars, who uh, 30 Seconds to Mars, who will probably be selling out the Hollywood Bowl. So he's winning an Oscar and he's having sellout arena shows worldwide, proving that you can be very successful in two separate fields. He's an inspiration to me. And I'm really excited to see him win. I'm really behind on all my movie watching uh, ventures, though. It's like I realized that there was probably like 10 movies that I wanted to see from last night. And usually I'm not into like the whole Oscar Academy winning movies, but I want to see uh, Nebraska. I want to see Dallas Buyers Club. I want to see uh, what else do, am I into? Oh, uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Never checked that one out yet. I mean, there's a lot of, of, of movies I got to check out. So. That is going to be... Actually, the other night I was going to watch Nebraska because it's on pay-per-view now, but instead I watched Kingdom of the Spiders starring William Shatner from 1977 for probably like the fifth time. And it's just the worst movie ever, but it's Shatner. And I text about it too. I was like, yeah, I'm watching you know, uh, Kingdom of the Spiders with William Shatner and he's awesome. And he texts me back. He's like, LOL. And I was like, you know, it's cool though, man. The movie's great. And plus you got to make out with a blonde chick. And he's like, oh, that's so precious. So I'm assuming that if you're 80, precious means funny. But yeah, I was talking to William Shatner, Bill Shatner on the Twitter. So I got that going for me. So yeah, so I need to get caught up on my movies. Now, uh, another thing that's funny too, I've been doing a lot of signings um, over the country for uh, auto shows. I just did one this weekend in Chicago. I've got Detroit next week, et cetera, et cetera. And people come up to me and they'll say, like, you know, you know, when, you, when you're coming back to the WWE or, you know, we really liked you in the WWE. We liked your last run, but we hated the fact that all you did was was lose and put people over. Why did you lose all the time? Lose. And I was like, you know, it doesn't really matter losing or winning. You know, it's kind of just um, it's more about the performance and having a great match. But a lot of people think that it's all about winning and losing. Well, it's funny. I subscribe to the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. 
uh, with my buddy Dave Meltzer, who does it. Actually, I subscribed for like three or four years, and then for the last, I think, 15, he just sends them to me. So I read them. It's always good to kind of read what's going on in business and stuff. And I happen to get this list of 2013 WWE win-loss records compiled by Chris Harrington. So Chris, who obviously is an uber wrestling fan and, and maybe has a lot of time on his hands, uh, put together a whole list of the wins and losses. So I was curious, just how many wins and losses did I have last year when I was accused of just losing all the time? Um, well, check it out. Here it is. I actually have it right here. Chris Jericho, uh, in singles matches, 26 wins, 20 losses, and one tie. Tag matches, eight wins, two losses. Overall, 34 wins, 22 losses, and one tie. That's an average of a 600% winning average, 0.605 winning. If I was a baseball player, I would be like making more money than A-Rod if I had a 600 batting average, right? So for everybody who says, oh, Jericho just lost when he came back. No, I didn't. I only lost 22 matches and won 34 out of uh, 57 total matches. <laughs> it's funny when I was first starting out wrestling, I used to actually keep my own win loss records. And it was like, it was everybody was so like, Oh, you can't be with your you mark. You keep track of your wins and losses. And I was like, no, but of course I was, I think probably everybody was when you first start out because wins and losses mean so much more when you're first starting out. But then after a while you realize it doesn't really matter, but let's see poor Oksana two wins, 83 losses for a zero to 0.024 win-loss record. Now, that's a horrible batting average. Let's look through. Oh, Daniel Bryan, 181 wins, 35 losses, and five ties. That's 830% winning percentage. So he's doing really good. Um, Camacho, 0% winning. He lost 0 out of 13 matches. So not a good year for old Camacho. Let's see who else. Oh, Cena, 0.952 winning percentage. He only lost 6 matches. Last year in 2013, out of 142 matches, that that's a winner. That's a winner. I, I'm not sure if I've ever beaten John Cena before. Uh, I know I wrestled him countless times, but I think I lost every single one of them. If you can remember a time that I beat John Cena, let me know on the Twitter at Talk Is Jericho. Let's see who else did good. Um, oh, here's uh, here's a good one, Kane. 800 uh, batting average, 107 wins, 25 losses. CM Punk, he had 700 winning average, not bad. Just trying to see who else did really, really good. I think Cena's obviously the best one. Sheamus, 800 batting average, 104 wins, 21 losses, and 5 ties. Bray Wyatt, 44 wins and 10 losses. He's at, he's at an 820, uh, 815. So there's, uh, you know, there's some good guys here. Guys get, had a good year winning lots of matches. Uh, but the biggest loser, I think, was uh, Oksana. Well, Camacho at zero, but Oksana. Kurt Hawkins, 0. .022. He wouldn't be making the squad with that type of batting average. So uh, my question is, like I said, who put together this list? This Chris Harrington, my goodness. That is a lot of, uh, of information. He must have gotten a list or, God forbid, watched every single match. Well, you couldn't have watched it, house show. So he went back online or whatever, kept a list of every show 
and compiled this this record. So the most matches in 2013 was Daniel Bryan had 227, uh, then Dean Ambrose, Randy Orton, Seth Rollins, and Roman Reigns. Okay, most times opposing each other, Daniel Bryan versus Seth Rollins 75 times. Holy smokes, that's a lot. Those guys must have had it down pat. Daniel Bryan versus Roman Reigns 74 times. Daniel Bryan versus Dean Ambrose 79 times. So Daniel Bryan was against the Shield a lot last year. Caitlin and Tamina Snuka, 57 matches. Um, Cena versus Ryback, 46 matches. So there's quite a few uh, uh, of, of these, lots of information. This guy should be working for Major League Baseball or something along those lines. I don't think I could watch that many matches or compile that, that much of a list. I have no problem combi- compiling my own list of matches, which I have kept a list of every match that I've ever had. Um, for my very first one, which was October 2nd, 1990, all the way up until my last match, which was July 13th, 2013. And I believe the list is about 2,843 or 44, something like that. I'll have to go back and check on it. But I kept a list. Uh, it used to be uh, the number of the ma- what, what number match it was and then who it was against and where it was, what the finish was, my rating of the match the amount of people I thought were there and the amount of money I made. So I kept a big long list of all these things. And then as time went by, I stopped dropping the, uh, the amount of people cause you're just guessing, you know, and then the amount of uh, money that I made, because then when you actually started making some money, I didn't really have to, you know, you didn't have to go match by match, but in the early days, like, you know, 50 bucks made 50 bucks or 150 bucks, or I made it 850 bucks. What a windfall, but I still kept the list and the list is still, Number of the match, name, where it is, who it's against, and the uh, the rating system. And the rating system for me would be five stars, would be the best match ever. And I think there, I might actually have one or two matches listed as five stars. And this is not what other people think, it's what I think. Because when you come out of the match, you know deep down inside whether it was a great gig or a so-so gig or you know a shitty one or whatever. And then I would think back on it, and, okay, this one was two stars, this was three stars. And if it was just kind of an average match that I thought was good but not great, I'd give it three stars. But if it was four stars or over, and I remember, remember back in 95, I was making this big scrapbook. I'd only been wrestling for five years or so. And I actually made a list of... Okay, here's my five-star matches. Here's my four-and-a-half-star matches. You know, matches won, matches lost, matches in Japan, matches in, matches in Mexico. I had it all. And then I just gave up. I just could not keep track. And actually, on, on my new book um, that is coming out October 13th, I will. Uh, I was going to actually include that list in the back of it like as, a, as an appendix, but I ran out of, of space. I had so much to write about. So if I ever do a fourth book, at the end of it, I'll have to put the list of all of my matches for anybody that cares. Like, I don't know if anybody would care to read through all of them, but I have them and I've never changed it from the paper to a computer. So if there was like a fire in my house or my dog peed on it or something like that, I would lose this information. Like the, like the first page that I have, the first match that I have written was is literally on the, on the pa- piece of paper that I wrote it on in 1990. So it's all crumpled up and all that sort of stuff. It might even be a little bit green at this point in time, but it's like, you know, you, people might pay a lot for that, eh? I could put it up on eBay and make a couple bucks if things ever go bad. But there you go. Chris Jericho's win-loss record in 2013, 26-20-1. Actually, overall, 34-22-1. 605 winning uh, percentage. So I don't want to hear it anymore 
about how all, all I did last year was lose. Okay? I might have lost all the big matches, but my overall record's pretty darn good. So step off, people. All right. This is this is your podcast. This is this is the people's podcast. So if you have any uh, comments on anything that I say, hit me up on the Twitter at Talk is Jericho. We got Rob Van Dam coming up. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. On the line, one of the most unique characters I've ever met in, in my wrestling career and one of my favorites to wrestle, Rob Van Dam, RVD. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Doing great, man. It's not it's not just an image, man. I, I feel as good as I look. <laughs> well, since it's radio, you're looking great today, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Exceptionally <laughs> well today. You know, it's the last time I saw you was uh, at the Barclay Center in, in Brooklyn, after we had the first match we'd had in, I think, 10 years or so. And uh, it's it's funny because a lot of fans, a lot of people, uh, everyone besides the WWE actually, said that the match was one of their favorites of the year, one of the best matches of the year. And uh, it was just kind of a, a nice uh, a nice way for me. It was my last night and your first night. True. Yep. <laughs> I still see on Twitter every day, I see somebody if not several people bitching that we sh- it was should have got a slammy or, or, or match of the year or, or something. Something. So, yeah, the fans really liked it. Yeah, it was funny, too, because, you know, it's one of those things. I mean, we worked each other tons of times uh, over the years, but it had been about 10 years. But once we got in there, it was just like, you, you know, it's, it's like riding the proverbial bike. You, you never forget each other's, uh, you know, move sets and chemistry uh, at, and- after all that time. Yeah, Chris, I enjoyed that match, too. Uh, it was a good way to come in and, and to see a New York uh, City for the first time in a long time for me. Um, the, the way that you're describing it reminds me of uh, the first time I wrestled Sabu in ECW. We just went out there and did our thing, and I, at that time, for sure, I'd wrestled Sabu and probably still have wrestled him more than anybody else in my career mm-hmm. since I was wrestling him before I had my first match because he was you know, helping train me. And so yeah. Well, I mean, it was funny because even, even you know, people that know how the WWE works, especially Raw, is the time is very regimented on the show. And right before we went out, something had gone wrong or ran short or ran long. And I remember they gave us eight extra minutes, about 30 seconds before we went out there, and an extra commercial break, too, which when you're putting together a match, the commercial break is always very important. They're very... Uh, meticulous about that. They want the commercial break to be a certain spot. And we just made everything up, including the breaks. I, I was I always took great pride in that. It was fun. It can be uh, fun for the artist or frustrating for the worker, uh, usually a combination of both. <laughs> How was your... Uh, well, let, let, let's talk about that. How was your, your last run in the WWE or your, your most recent run in the WWE? And what, what was the uh, background in, in making you decide to come back after so many years? Yeah, well, it was awesome. Um, I really enjoyed it, mm-hmm. and um, I was impressed with 
and we might get back to this, but I was impressed with the work rate standard, how much higher it was than when I left. Mm-hmm. When, when, when I was there before, there was room for guys that sucked, you know, guys that would get pushed, fans would bitch, uh, we would bitch, we'd be, some of us would have to put them over, and then, the, then they realize that doesn't work, they get rid of them, and then we're left, you know, with right. broken pieces to pick up. And I don't want to start naming names, but there were several. There was just room for that then. Now there's not. Everybody, everybody knew what they were doing in that ring uh, on a whole new level, and I was really uh, happy to see that, and I hope that trickles down everywhere. Um, it seems like it may be because I was at Booker T's uh, mm-hmm. reality of wrestling uh, a few weeks ago in, in Houston, and I, I thought, wow, man, this is I can't believe this is an independent show. All these guys are just you know, really out there. Uh, doing it right, and, and, and they know what you know. They, they know what they're doing, so it was awesome. So what happened was I, was, I had a three-year contract with TNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the contract was coming up. Um, I, I was letting it come up without talking to them, um, not because I wanted to go anywhere else, uh, but it, there, there was. Uh, there was well, what the hell? Because I was <laughs> my pay. Um, and my deal was such that I had a, uh, a number of matches that I would work in a year. Mm-hmm. If I worked over that, then they had to pay me over that. I was collecting overtime, and I didn't want to bring it to a. I didn't want to bring it to a point, you know, where they would stop booking me because I was still, you know, enjoying uh, collecting the extra. So I let my deal run out, and I was still working. And then, boom, it ran out. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, I get, I get a phone call. They want to know if I want to resign. Uh, we talked about every single term. Um, I had a deal on the table that I was really happy with. Mm-hmm. I was really happy with the deal that I had uh, when I was there, you know, and this was uh, just, this was, you know, a good thing. I was looking forward to it. But the only thing we didn't have was a starting date, and then they started just slacking mm-hmm. and, you know, saying they're, they're going to call me on Friday, and then I wouldn't hear from them. And then, you know, like a week or two would go by. And then I'd hear, get a call. Oh, I don't know what's taking so long. It's not me. It's this person. Let me get back. And I just really, I got to a point where I was offended, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and like it struck my ego. And, you know, so I was just, you know, like, well, screw them, you know. And I, <laughs> uh, I went to the Hall of Fame to see Booker T get inducted. I knew that would kick a bunch of rumors out there that I'd be coming back, but that wasn't the situation at all. I hadn't mm-hmm. seen hardly anybody in years, and I got there so late, I didn't even get to talk to most people. <laughs> I got there, right when I got there, they were like, hey, we need to rush you out there to the to the seats. And I was like, you know, I got a couple pictures real quick. They got out there on the internet, but I didn't really get to see anybody. And it was it was a little time later that I was like, you know, I'm not sure if this uh, thing is happening with TNA. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there seem to be uh, plenty of reasons to maybe look into WWE and see if there's an opportunity there. Uh, when I left, by the way, back in 2006, they wanted me to re-sign and just take some time off and come right back. And I said, I'm so burned out. I can't do that. I'll be counting the minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I don't know exactly how many days till I got to come back. I won't, I don't know how long it's going to take me to clear my head and get spiritually balanced. I need to have an indefinite you know, disconnection from right. here. And when I'm ready, I'll come back. I had no idea it was going to be six or seven years. <laughs> so I was ready to come back. But when I came back, I was ready, dude. Yeah. Well, I mean, who was it that you were dealing with at TNA at this point? Who was it? Is it Terry Taylor now or? Uh, no, he's been gone for quite a oh, okay. while. Oh, sorry. Time. Yeah. He's yeah. In... As a matter of fact, I think he works for, uh, he does. Works yeah, okay. WWE. Yeah. He works for WWE. 
Yeah, so now I don't even know. I mean, it's been a year, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. at that time, Bruce Pritchard was the man on top, and they had designated Al Snow to uh, be the middleman to talk to me. Gotcha. And, uh, you know, the first phone call that he gave me, when he said, oh, Rob, you're a contractor now. He was like, um, you know, this is uh, kind of awkward for me. I don't know why they... Uh, they wanted me to middleman this, but they, they want to know if you're interested in resigning. And it was awkward, mm-hmm. you know, and, and when I got offended, uh, part of the offense was on L, you know, which there's no long-term hard feelings there. But for a minute, you know, there I was like, screw him, you know, I mean, just I've known L, I've known L since like. Right, forever. 90. I may have been 1990, no, 89, yeah, 90s. Anyway, um but I was like, you know, I mean, if I tell, hey, Chris, you know, I'm going to find out something, you know, I, I'm, I apologize. I'll give you a call Friday. I'm going to talk to so-and-so. And then you don't hear from me in two weeks. I don't know. I'm kind of being an angel yeah. perspectively, perspectively. But anyway, I get it. I get it. It's definitely not on him. But for a minute, I was, you know, when I decided to reach out uh, to WWE, I was kind of like uh, offended by everybody, mm-hmm. by Dixie, which who knows? Who knows uh, what kind of information goes all the way to the top? You know, she could have sure. could have been telling her they were talking to me when they were or whatever. I don't know, but still, I felt like, wait a second, does she not notice? Mm-hmm. I haven't been on her TV in like six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, you mentioned though that when you left in two thousand and six, uh, WWE wanted you to resign, but you needed some time away. What was it that made you sign with TNA uh, instead of WWE when you're ready to come back to to full time uh, working? Well, so I took three years uh, off. When I first left WWE, I was so burnt out because I'd been burnt out for much of my run there, you know, and I've been asking for time off, not getting it, getting further burnt out, finding ways to keep going for so long that when my contract ran out, because, you know, I don't, I'm not one of these guys that, that walks out in the middle of their contract, you know, I don't know how, whatever, everyone handles their business differently, but yeah. I finished the deal. <laughs> And and then I was just like, okay, you know, I, I fulfilled my obligations. I don't care if I ever step on an airplane again. Mm-hmm. I don't care if I ever step in the ring again. And that's how I felt at that time. And about six, seven months went by, and then I got this uh, really uh, tempting offer. You know, I've been, getting, I've been turned down all these offers, and this one guy who became a good friend of mine, Axel, in Portugal, um, he's talking to one of my friends that that, uh, that actually middlemaned this, you know, and, and then ended up calling me and saying, hey, dude, you're going to Portugal. I go, what? Dude, come on. You know the deal. I don't want to go anywhere. Big money, up front, 100%, two first-class tickets, you know, so me and my wife can go on a vacation, put us up in a nice hotel, stay on them, have a vacation there an extra four or five days, sold it to the wife first. I put the boots back on. <laughs> Once I had the boots back on, I went about three years wrestling exclusively overseas. I only did one shot oh, wow. in uh, the States, and that was 30 minutes up the road at the Russell Reunion, uh-huh. which also was a sweet payday, 100% up front. Uh, and so I got new standards then. And, and, and you know, what it was worth to me uh, wasn't the same as what it would be worth to most bookers or promoters. So I had you know, very selective uh, um, career going on. And then with TNA, it was mostly just an extension of that. It was uh, a deal with, I'll do so many matches uh, for so much money. Uh, and it was a real good deal. And, of mm-hmm. course, they had TV. It was cool to get on TV. But mostly, dude, that was that was a very, that, one of the, uh, hmm, I don't know how I should put this. It was one of the best, uh, actually, all along my career perspectively, I've always, always, had a better deal than I had before. Mm-hmm. Um, and for this one, 
it was it was a three year deal, and at first every two weeks I was taking a direct flight from LAX to Orlando. I'd get there, I'd take a red eye, I'd get there Monday morning. We'd do TV Monday, we'd do TV Tuesday. Uh, my parents lived near there, so it was cool. I was able to visit them. Boom. I'd uh, jet back home. I'd be off for two weeks. It was a sweet deal. Very stress-free. Well, as much as you could, could yeah. have anyway. I mean, for normal people, even just taking a flight or just going through the airport once is a lot of work. So for us, we're used to handling so much yeah. stress anyway. Yeah, but this was uh, yeah, this was the most you know relaxed, and, and it felt really appreciative to have me down there. You know, it was Universal Studios. So if I did get a little stressed out over whatever, you know, because I can get overwhelmed easy. You know, yeah. I spent the whole three years sitting in my car in the parking lot. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> if, 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 if everybody wants a piece of me, I get overwhelmed. You know, hey, everything, hey when you get time, we need to do a promo over here. Hey, we're doing a photo shoot for this over here. Hey, we got we to gotta do a walkthrough over here. We got to hey, you got so-and-so wants to talk to you. I'll get overwhelmed. I always have, you know. That's, yeah. that's work. Yeah. Fans don't realize, but that's work, man, but... You know, Universal Studios, if I did get stressed out, I'd take a walk, I'd go ride the Spider-Man ride. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting what you just said, too. It's funny because you are right. For a normal person flying a red-eye coast-to-coast on a weekly basis, it messes them up because there's the time change, just, just you know, traveling overnight. For us, like I said, that's a sweet deal, man. It's, it, we live in a different world than the majority of, of, of normal people, quote-unquote. Oh, absolutely. That's Of course, that's why they're fascinated by our lifestyle. And <laughs> we look at... Uh, other, you know, A-list celebrities the same way. I mean, how can we not look at George Clooney and go, man, the life that guy must have, you know, private jets, yachts, his pick of all the gorgeous women, the stacks of money under his pillow, you know, <laughs> just to put his head up. But, you know, that's like we're, yeah, we're uh, a unique, unique. We're, we're, we're a small, we're a small group, you know. Yeah. And but- that's. It is. It is a small world. People forget too. By the way, when they start talking about it, wrestlers need to be insured. Which I don't want to open up a whole can of worms here. But we're a small group. We're like one company, maybe two. We're not like um, yeah, something that yeah that's offered out there for kids. You know, on the uh, in college or on your on your you know fill this out of school. When I grow up, I want to be a fireman, a principal, <laughs> a pro wrestler. Oh, there it is. I'll check that box. It's not yeah. on there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, it, it is a small world. Like you said, and there's only a certain amount of, of really uh, quality performers. You had a, you, you spent three years in TNA. Who were some of the best guys that you like to work with there? Oh, man. Um, let's see. Uh, Samoa Joe. Um, I like the matches with Abyss very much. Okay, yeah. They were usually hardcore, which uh, is what I like. Jeff Hardy, you know, I wish I could have uh, wrestled with him more. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you wrestle with Angle at all when you were there? Yeah, yeah, Angle, yeah, um, AJ's really good. I, I, I kind of regret that we didn't have, like, classic matches that we could have, but there mm-hmm. was a lot of factors go- going into that, I think, with timing and everything. But he's obviously, he's, he's really good. They got a lot of guys that I think could easily, you know, step up if they wanted to, but a lot of them don't look at that as stepping up, mm-hmm. meaning meaning going, you know, to the, to the dub. But a lot of them, you know how it is, like, you get, after a while you start – your priorities are different, and you care about the art so much. You know, I mean, I've heard backyard kids. I don't ever want to leave the backyard. You know, this is what I do. <laughs> yeah. You know, all right. All right. But you kind of owe it to yourself uh, to, you know, to to get the most long term that you can out of your efforts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and who, you mentioned earlier about some of the guys that you worked in WWE that you'd never worked before. Who, who were some of the uh, guys you enjoyed being in the ring with when you came back this time? 
everybody. I enjoyed uh, being in the ring with everybody, you know, and mostly I was doing um, an angle with um, Alberto Del Rio. He's good, isn't he? I liked working with him. Yeah, before I went there, uh, when I turned the TV on, I was like, I better watch this and try to familiarize myself with these guys. Alberto Del Rio stood out. I liked, I liked his uh, style and, and also um, Antonio Cesaro. Yeah, he's great too, man. He's one of those guys that makes me laugh because I think early on in his uh, WWE career, Vince gave him the stamp of no personality or whatever it is, and they kind of stuck him in a, in a role. But he is going to be such a huge star there, and they're already kind of giving him a little bit of a shot because that guy's a great worker. I don't hear anybody ever say anything different either. And, and behind the curtains, he's known as being one of the strongest wrestlers in the dressing room, which you might not guess as a fan when you're looking at, you know, Mark Henry and uh, yeah. Ryback and all these guys. But um, everyone is super impressed with his uh, natural strength. Yeah. Uh, Regal was telling me one day that uh, Cesaro, Cesario? Cesaro. Cesaro. Yeah, that he can uh, snatch a um, uh, a universal uh, barbell with a 45-pound plate on each side with one hand in the middle and pick it up off the ground straight up over his head without <laughs> collars on it. Insane, right? Yeah, I remember yeah. We'd being in the ring and you'd be like, be like I want to pick you up and I'll give you a gut wrench suplex and yeah. don't do anything. So you'd be on the ground, he would just pick pick me up, like literally like i pick up my son and just Pitch me across the ring. And, you know, we're about the same height, but he's just got that crazy core strength to him, like the just just like a monster, you know? Yeah, I've seen him do it to the biggest guys there. Yeah, exactly. It's funny that, you know, talking about WWE, you actually appeared in the WWE when you were a teenager with the Million Dollar Man and one of his Million Dollar Man skits. I, I had forgotten about this. And when I did some research before this interview, because, you know, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty professional nowadays, what, how the hell did that happen? And tell me the story about that. So I'm a fan at this point, and this is one of my first shows. You know, I don't know what number, but I'd only been to, you know, uh, a few shows. I was making the rounds when they'd come to Battle Creek, Lansing, mm-hmm. uh, where at Grand Rapids, wherever somebody would take me. And my, uh, uh, anyway, so this was Battle Creek, and we're, you know, they're filming a vignette that's going to be on TV. It's a little different than normal house shows because they bring the cameras down. It's like a real big deal with the lights. And, ooh, and uh, a lot of us kind of rushed down there towards the, the guardrail, and during his speech, he points uh, towards me, although my best friend that was standing next to me swears he pointed <laughs> at him, and I just jumped. <laughs> I just jumped. <laughs> But yeah, I got in the ring and, uh, you know, had no, it, none of this was set up other people, you know, they have no idea where, you know, where the boundaries are, but this was just, he said, I'm going to give this, I'm going to pay this kid to kiss my hot, stinky, sweaty foot. I was so excited. I already wanted to be a wrestler uh-huh. at that point. And I was just, you know, so enthralled by the whole situation when, you know, as soon as he goes, I'm going to give you a hundred dollars. All right. I just grabbed it. You know, worst Worst negotiator ever. <laughs> you negotiated for less money. <laughs> yeah, and and that's the whole deal, you know. Is you're supposed to say no, no, and two hundred, no, three hundred, no, four hundred. Well, yeah, I guess I, uh, I guess I'll do it for four hundred. Yeah, you know. I mean, I knew that. I watched the show. I knew the deal, but I was so excited. 
I just, you know, I grabbed the hunter, I kissed his foot, I slapped Virgil on the shoulder. I was like, sweet. And I was so worried, by the way, in 2001 when I came to WWE, I was so worried that they were going to make a ridiculous <laughs> angle out of that, you know, and say that, like, it's been, you know, for the last uh, 20 years I've been training, and the reason I got into the business was to get my revenge on him for humiliating me. Or, doesn't that kind of sound like something that they would have done? Oh, yeah, they make you like the, uh, you'd have a foot fetish where you have to go kiss people's yeah. feet. <laughs> I was really concerned about that. So I, I wanted this under the cover. I didn't really talk about it. And then my dad exposed it when I did an interview for that um, before they were superstars. And he, my dad did, oh, dad, you don't know what you did. Oh, they're going to make me look so. But they didn't, though. I'm, so. Surpri- I'm surprised that they didn't know that. I'm surprised that that didn't come out at some point during your uh, earlier career. Yeah, well, you know, uh, and when it did finally come out, it was taken for what it is, you know, a part of actual real history, you know. So, and, uh, so you wanted to be a, a wrestler even at that young age. How did you? Yeah, because my first show that I went to, someone put the idea in my head, and that was just a few shows before that. Were you always uh, very athletic and acrobatic? No, really. Which is uh, acrobatic, maybe, but not. I was never recognized for. It. I mean, I I would watch uh, chop sake movies, mm-hmm. and I'd watch wrestling. I'd imitate the moves. Uh, I could run up a tree and do a backflip, stuff like that. I remember I used to be really skinny. And that allowed me to do certain stuff too. Like on the playground, I could stand on the the log the log house, and I could like jump up and turn sideways and fall between the the space and the roof. You know, oh, yeah. go, ooh, so I guess I was entertaining people when I was like in first grade. Um, but I, I never, I didn't like uh, school sports. You know, I, mm-hmm. I joined wrestling. I joined wrestling because I wanted it to supplement my career, and I found out that they wanted everyone to be small and I want to be big. You know, I'm mm-hmm. 165 pounds telling people I'm going to be a professional wrestler and the coach and everyone's saying I could probably get down to 135. And oh, that was wow. the goal. Everyone, Michigan was in the state championships too, or well, Michigan was the state, but they were in the national champions. It was a real serious time. And so everybody was wearing a whole bunch of sweatshirts and, and, and you know, making themselves throw up. And, uh-huh. and they, best wrestlers, the best wrestlers, in our school, you know, I have the reputation for really, really being good. They were skinny and wiry. I was like, man, I, I don't want that. I want to put on 100 pounds. So, so I quit. And it was actually sometime in 96 when I read an interview that Taz did. It might have even been 97 because we didn't get along for a long time. I don't know if he would have put me over or not. That really, but he, did, he did an interview uh, where where he said that he thought RVD was like the most athletically gifted wrestler in the business. And that's the first time that I remember that ever even crossed in my mind. Like me, really? <laughs> and it made me, motivated me to really, you know, put a little effort into it. Well, did you train, um, you know, you mentioned that you grew up in Battle Creek. Is that how you got in the business? Did you, did you train with the Sheik and with Sabu? Uh, I did. I did. I, I, I actually, I graduated high school in 89. That same year I took my first, uh, um, trip by myself and i and i saved up i had been saving money and i went to boston and visited killer kowalski school and uh, this was after sending five dollars to this wrestling magazine i got this list of wrestling schools and i corresponded and i called and i talked to anybody that would talk to me mm-hmm. larry sharp monster factory uh, uh johnny hunter north carolina anybody that would call me back you know mm-hmm. i was asking 
asking the same questions, you know, tuition, duration, all that. And and I was trying to save money to go see Kowalski, and then I ended up finding out the Sheik, who had the same credibility from my perspective as Kowalski. The same, he trained a lot of guys. They were actually both trained by the same guy, Bert Ruby, as a matter of fact. But, oh, wow. Yeah, so anyway, the Sheik was 45 minutes from my parents' house. I wasn't going to have to go to Boston and try to figure out how to, you know, how to survive. And, yeah. It, in your old kids, so um, you know, no regrets. How was he as a as a trainer? Did he actually get in the ring with you, or did he just kind of tell you what to do? He rarely got in the ring with us. Uh, he was pretty old by that time, mm. and uh, when he would get in the ring, we didn't like it. We were very scared of him. He was intimidating. <laughs> he never once, never once, suggested anything about anything being a work ever. Really? Um, which I think is probably rare <laughs> to get trained to be a pro wrestler and and have. Uh, and we never once, he never once, this, I got trained the opposite of the way every fan would think that you get trained, but I never once had, this is a safe way to fall, this is, you know, how to do really? something to somebody without hurting them, never once, never once. He wanted us to be rough, grab each other, you know, like, it was all about protecting the business first, there was no, there was nothing about safety, wrestlers were the tough guys, get in there, grab them, squeeze them, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, what are you doing, what, are you afraid you're going to hurt them, grab them, and that's when he would get in the ring, when we, only when we weren't stiff enough, he'd get in there and he'd stretch us, and, and you know, he'd, he'd really, like, fire us up, but, you know, we, we, we kind of, amongst ourselves, we, we kind of knew that uh, we were all there for like for the same goal, you know, and, and we were, you know, at least we had common sense. But the way that we got trained was uh, never one time what you and I would refer to as being smartened up. What was uh, who was your first match against? Sabu. Uh, well, no, I guess it wasn't. He was part of it though. But um, this, uh, I, my best friend growing up, uh, his name was uh, Dango Nguyen. He's a fireman in Atlanta now, but we actually, uh, after I got into the wrestling school, uh, several months later, uh, he joined. It wasn't, I say a school, but really there was like four of us. It was real private. We ate dinner with Sheik and his wife, swam in his pool. After It was real private, but and it was at his house, but it, sometimes it moved around. Uh, he, um, he and I, were, we did everything together. We did the tough man contest together. We did martial arts contests together, tournaments. Uh, we both had the same dreams and goals and, uh, we, we you know, both were trained mm-hmm. by Cheek and we, our first match was against each other. Um, and, and they really, Sabu was like right outside the ring to jump in and, 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 and end it before it got too long to protect, uh, how green we were and right. stuff. Yeah. That's how it went. Wow. That's, uh, <laughs> and what was his name? The guy that you had your first match with? Dango. He's uh, he's he's uh, he's on the he's, he does a lot of extra work on Walking Dead. Oh, cool! And, uh, some vampire thing right now. He's working his way up, but he actually uh, still wrestles once in a while, and he actually even wrestled for ECW. And Paul offered him a job, and much to his regret, he had to turn it away uh, due to you know um, just like no- normal people, you know, because the family, his sure. wife didn't want him to do it and all that. He has since divorced his wife, so now he's kicking himself <laughs> in the ass. But. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. 
So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Talk is talk is talk is Jericho. Welcome back to Talk is Jericho. I am here with RVD. We're about to talk about uh, Rob's time in ECW. Um, back in the early '90s, ECW was the place to be, but it wasn't exactly the easiest place to, to get in. How did you get into uh, in, in, into working there? Sabu was already there. Oh, and, okay, uh, he had been for the longest time. He kept calling me. Did Paul call you? You're kidding me. He said he was going to call you Monday. <laughs> All right, I'll call you back in a minute. That happened for the longest time, and I didn't care. I was totally like whatever because I had a, a, a sweet deal with All Japan at the time. Oh yeah. And, yeah, and, uh, you know, I mean, Japan money versus, uh, you know, the, the money that these guys are talking or, or indie, indie shows, whatever. It was just like, dude, I could go over to Japan for two weeks and then not work for six months. You know, my bills yeah. were so low at the time, you know, in a small little apartment with uh, not much overhead. And I was just like, hey, if Paul calls me, he calls me, whatever. In fact, when he did call me, um, I, the first time I didn't go because he wanted me to work Mikey Whipwreck. I didn't like what he and he wanted, you know, to, it was to get Mikey over and just take a look at me and probably do Sabu a favor by bringing me in. So mm-hmm. I was like, I'll pass, I'll pass. And then uh, eventually, you know, something worked out and and I went up there. Yeah, Baba, by the way, in, in all Japan, that part of my career, which was a really substantial part uh, for me of my career, almost totally forgotten by by almost yeah. all the. Well, the wrestling. Well, let's talk uh, about that. I mean, followers, I, I, you know, I remember when they, when they go through my path. A lot of them think I started in '96 with ECW, but um, Baba was so cool. I started '93, uh, worked in all Japan till '97. Uh, Giant Baba had passed away. I did like one tour for his wife, and mm-hmm. everything kind of fell apart. But he was so cool. He was like, "How much money do you want? How many weeks a year do you want?" Wow, he gave you that type of a deal. Yeah, which doesn't mean for sure I'm going to get exactly what I what I say, you know. But but yeah, you know, first time, uh, yeah, and and I, it was like they wanted me more than I wanted them because my first my first time I went for the two weeker, which was February, and I was so traumatized by the tour <laughs> that I didn't want to go back. Like I love the style, but um, the the ten hour bus rides, uh, yes. I couldn't eat any of the food. I was just I was just homesick, you know, and I didn't even know how to fly back then. I mean, this was I was twenty. 22 years old, and I was just a little kid, really, mm-hmm. looking back. It's funny. They, uh, you know, they, Dory, Dory would call me, you know, a few months later. Hey, they went off. You're ready to go back. And I was like, uh, no, give me some more time. And the whole year went by. And I did the next February tour <laughs> uh, because that was the shortest tour of the year. I couldn't handle doing five weeks over there. You know, I was, as it was, I, I must have lost 10, 15 pounds in the, t- in the two weeks. <laughs> did you ever get used to it? Uh, I, enough. I, yeah, I did. I got used to it enough, you know, to where um, as I was as my star was rising, I'd gone to them a few times. Hey, I bought some more money. They were always really cool. Eventually, I was like, look, you know, I want to I want to be able to just count on this or whatever. And that's, you know, like, yeah, how much do you want? You know, and this much a week. And, and then uh, how many tours? You know, and I was like, I just want to do, I think it was, I think I wanted, you know, I was like, I can't remember exactly, but it was like maybe, seems like 8 to 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. It's kind of vague, you know, but it was like uh, maybe like three Three tours was a year was, you know, it was going to work good for me there. Maybe four, that'd be heavy, but I couldn't understand those guys. Johnny Ace was one of them, you know, yeah. Patriot. 
Doug Furness, Danny Crawford, those guys, man, they would come home uh, sometimes for a week and a half, sometimes for three weeks, and bam, just turn around and go right back. They, they, it's like they lived over there. It was yeah. like a whole other world that doesn't even exist and didn't exist to the fans that, that only watched American wrestling. You know, it's interesting because our, our careers were very, uh, very similar. I was over in Japan the same time as you were. I started there in 94, and I was one of those guys. I used to go every two weeks for a whole year. I think I did 12 tours or whatever it was, but I remember I saw a match of you and Danny Crawford, Phil LaFon. It was uh, maybe uh, I remember a single match, some kind of single match, and it was uh, just an amazing match. Do you remember that that match by chance? I'll always remember that. It yeah. was very pivotal. It was very pivotal for me because uh, I learned so much from that match. Uh, we all called him well, Abdullah the Butcher came, was mostly, we called Danny Crawford the master, you know, which kind of, uh, we, a lot of us would call him that too. But he, uh, he, was, he was known for really, you know, getting the most out of, mm-hmm. out of every match. And uh, I, I just learned so much, you know, about not just doing moves, but placing them in the right order so that to get the best reaction, a growing reaction out of the crowd, you know, to finally yeah. hit at crescendo, can I use a musical term? I don't qualify. I'm not, at crescendo, <laughs> that works. But to hear that, boom! You know, <laughs> it was good. It was really good. And, you know, I remember. I always remember that match, and I would love to someday run into Danny Crawford and thank him for that. And by the way, weren't your tours mostly like one match or no? No, our tours were usually. I mean, there was some that were one match, but uh, when I was with WAR, the, the, we would do two weeks, uh, mostly two weeks. Once in a while, it'd be three week. Once in a while, it'd be one week. But it was two weeks on the average, which were, like you said, you would have loved working with WR because that's all we basically did. Yeah, eventually it was it was all right for me. But man, for the first my first tour, I remember like uh, things were a lot different back then. I yeah. mean, now Japan has become a, a very Americanized, um, you know. But back then, everybody and it's going to sound stereotypical, but screw it, it's true. Everybody wore the exact same clothes. Like when you would go out in Tokyo, <laughs> like uh, we, we stayed in the Ginza area. Yeah. And you, when you go, you wait for the um, the signal to change to cross the busy street. Everybody moves in unison, like the like the robots. They all all the men have the exact same suit on. All the women are dressed the same. They all have the exact same color hair. Yeah, they all move the same. It was it was crazy. And then, like after being there for like ten, eleven days or something, I I, I saw one girl probably in her in her pungy that maybe was different. Like she dyed her hair. It was like, oh my god! Oh, look at that girl. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the funny thing too about it was is that there was no uh, cell phones or computers. I remember we used to have to go buy international phone cards, where you'd have to find an international phone and put like this credit card into the phone to call home, and it would it would click down credits. And when you ran out of credits, you threw the card away and put another one in. Like, how crazy is that? It was only twenty years ago, but it seems like it might as well have been a hundred. Bobby Duncan Jr. is on the phone, international phone, which is in the lobby, because like, yeah. like you said, we had to do that. And so we could hear him because we're in the lobby, and he might have had a little bit of alcohol, but the phone would echo this particular night anyway, and you'd get the feedback, and it would repeat what you just said. Bobby got into a fight with himself on the phone in front of everybody. It was the funniest thing ever, because he calls home, he's like, hello, hello? Who's this? Who's this? Hey, hey, where's my wife? Where's my wife? He goes, you tell her to have the divorce papers ready when I get home. And he hung up the phone. And he was really upset. 
Uh, yes, good old Bobby Duncan Jr., man. Well, I mean, we talked about parallel careers. I mean, you went to ECW. I followed you soon afterwards. I called Pauly for a year, by the way. I talked to uh, Pauly's roommate, Dave, which was t- Pauly. Just, it's like, yes, this is uh, Pauly's roommate, Dave. I'll, we'll call back later. I talked to him where he said he had Jimmy Snook on the other line. I'll call you back in five minutes. So I never heard from him for a year. I finally get to go. The first guy I ever meet uh, when I knock on the hotel room that I'm sharing the, the, the room with, and it's you. You had just started like about a week before that. We got there at about oh, the same yeah. time. You remember? Yeah, because I, re- I thought you were there before me because I remember that, that last show at the Queen's Battalion yes. Center before they moved to the Elks Lodge. And then you and I, I think we might have even tagged. Um, I think my first match ever in ECW, we were a tag against the Eliminators at the, oh, at the body. Slam, at the Slam Arena. Yeah, at the Slam so. Arena. And then we worked against each other um, in the Queen's Elk Lodge. Which uh, that was the first, yeah, that's the first time we ever worked. But but then we worked each other at the um, um, Queens. No, it's it's that it was that Temple Lulu Temple. Yeah, we were yeah well, we worked we worked there quite a drop few. Kicked me. You did that drop kick off the apron or off the turnbuckle. while I was on the apron. Uh-huh. Bam! You hit me, and, and I did a backflip. Do you remember this? I do. I did a backflip and smashed well three quarters of a backflip to. To re, you know, from the kick, and when I landed, my knee hit so hard and hyperextended. And the next day was the very first time that I would uh, try that I would ever wrestle after taking a, a pain pill. Uh, thank you, pit bulls. Oh, oh, really? Wow. Yeah, okay. my knee was so messed up, and and I didn't want anybody to know. And I was limping; I couldn't straighten it out. It was it was really bad. It was like uh, it, it affected my walk and everything. The next night was in Philly. And, um, and yeah, the pit bulls, oh, here, just take this, bro. Here, wash it down with this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. which became, which became a standard, you know, the, uh, in the dressing room that several boys followed and several did not. But that was, you know, that was my introduction to that. Yeah, and, and that, Matt, that night in Philly, um, where I was really concerned about my knee, I wrestled Sabu, uh, and, and I limped out to the ring, but I was hoping nobody would notice. And he went right for my leg right away, but the 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 ring had broke. Uh-huh. The famous night. Oh uh, the yeah, ring had broke a couple times. They tried to fix it. The people had to wait forever. It was over 100 degrees in the building. Kimono Wanalea was uh, yes. dancing. Paul Paulie Center. Me and Steph, we started our match. Bam! The top rope broke right <laughs> off the bat, and he didn't even care. He did his chair top rope, stood on the broken rope that's hanging there like a jump rope. And then did his moonsault, and I was like, oh, it's done. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the ring broke, so uh, the fans were waiting so long that Paul sent Kimono Wanalea, this really hot uh, Asian valet, up to the little crow's nest area to do a strip tease while the people were waiting. EC Dub. And I remember I was standing next to Terry Gordy, and he goes, I ain't never seen nothing like this at no wrestling match before. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, people talk about ECW with such great um, memories. I mean, uh, with great respect, and and they, it was almost like the golden age. Being at ECW, uh, it really was kind of um, an us versus them mentality. It really was a, an interesting place to be because it was like a bunch of rebels. I noticed that right away when I got there. Did you feel that uh, being there that it was kind of a real closed society, almost? Um, uh, you know, we're better than the world type of a vibe? Well, 
Yes, and I think, you know, prospectively, anybody that really stands by their own their own um, standards mm-hmm. and, and really doesn't need to conform, um, I think that person, you could call them a rebel, but prospectively, they do think they're better than anybody else. At least they're doing what's best for them. And I'm one of those nonconformists. Like, I don't, I, I, you know, I don't need That's right. somebody else to tell me what I should be thinking. I hate that. That's one of my worst frustrations throughout the day is having all of my actions and thoughts and, and every, every efforts second guess. Why do you do that? Why don't you do it this way? I just, for me, you know, um, I, I'm one of a kind. Everybody knows that. Like you introduced me, a unique <laughs> individual. Yeah, the, this band of renegades, ECW, was a bunch of nonconformists, and that's what the whole spirit of ECW was. That's why so many of us sacrificed going to other companies, because we wanted to stay there and always be able to do it by our own our own way, you know? Like, yes. this is the way we want to be seen, and, you know, I mean, it never could have grown to as big as uh, as was necessary to consider it making it to the top. Well, I mean... You know, because I think if it would have made it to the top, it would have kind of changed the concept of what the company was. Because I mean, talking about being in Japan in the, in the you know the mid nineties from ninety three, ninety four, ninety five, ECW was the place to be if you read the Japanese magazines. Like there was so much coverage about ECW, and WWE at the time was kind of a little bit boring, and WCW was kind of boring. You know, kind of the same old, same old. But ECW was a whole new thing, and very much a a pioneer. Uh, you know, setting the standard for hardcore matches, and like you said, a guy, a guy like Sabu could go there and do whatever he wanted and not get, you know, well, that's not good psychology because the psychology of ECW was just be yourself. Yeah, which that's my T-shirt line right there. You just, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> for you too. Side project that is exactly exactly what you said. It's uh, platypieproductions.org, and it, at this point, like I don't even know if anyone else is going to get it or if they're going to really care about it. But I love these shirts, <laughs> you know. And maybe that's one of them says on the back, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. You know? uh, that's right, yeah. Well, and another cool thing, too, is, is that I thought Paul Paul Heyman, Paulie Dangerously, which is, well, he was Paul Heyman at the time, he was a great motivator. And I'll never forget, like, you know, I was making, I don't know, 250 bucks a match or maybe 500 bucks a match, but it wasn't about the money. He would stand by the curtain when you came through and be like, you, sir, are one of the finest competitors I've ever had the pleasure of working with, and I will work with you for as long as you like. Like, he would make you feel, like, special, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Be- absolutely. Uh, and, and with me and Sabu, like, we always felt like we were on a total different level uh, with him, and he treated us like that. One time at the Greyhound Center in uh, in Boston, he, in Rivera, I think it is. He goes, uh, I'm going to have a, a meeting today. I'm going to tell everybody that it's mandatory and that they have to be there. You and Sabu don't have to be there. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, and then Sabu would tell me, well, he's doing that to manipulate because the dressing room, then they're going to say, hey, where's Robin Sabu? And then, you know, it's going to get heat, heat on us. And he's going to say, I don't know. I haven't seen them. And of course. He was explaining Paul to me at the time. <laughs> <laughs> who were some of the, your favorite, favorite guys to work with there besides, obviously, Sabu? You guys had great chemistry. Who else did you like working with there? 
Oh my God! Every I mean, I, it was there was so so many like the bigger guys. Man, I was marking out to be able to wrestle with Bam Bam Bigelow or One Man Gang. Um, you know, Kamala. When I had the belt for two years, the TV belt, we were bringing people in from mm-hmm. Japan, other groups, whatever, just to challenge for the title. It was so fun. I liked wrestling with smaller guys too, Spike, Little Guido. Um, you know, and that was, I was really learning the craft and learning to try to consistently put out the best matches I could, which my following, you know, would swear they were the best matches on the card and chant my name from beginning to end. It, it, at times, you know, when things were really rocking there, it was awesome. And, you know, it's, I'm going to have a completely different match with little Guido than I am with one man gang. But Mm -hmm. that was what I understood was what it was about. You know, you got what you bring to the table, uh, and you mix that up. You know, and they bring what they bring to the table, and bam, that's that's what, what keeps it interesting. Is that where you started the uh, RVD double thumb point to your uh, to your head, Rob Van Dam? Yeah, but, and also, of course, I have to mention Jerry Lynn. I have my oh Jerry, yeah, Jerry's career with Jerry with Jerry Lynn. So Jerry's not, Jerry's yeah. very underrated as a performer. I, I find. Well, that's it. You know, the first time I wrestled him in Philly. Uh, Paul and Sabu were like, okay, this should be a quick match, like eight minutes, you know, it was like for TV or whatever. I was like, wait a second, I, you know, can, can I have longer? Take as long as you want. You know, that was Paul. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought, I thought, man, there's, I don't know, I didn't even know Jerry really. Um, I just knew he was a friend of Scotty Riggs and Scotty was a friend of mine. But, uh, you know, I was like, I, I don't know, I like him and I, I, I think, you know, maybe we can do something. And bam, had, uh, first match, we had 20 minutes. Uh, and my outfit was ripped, my nose was bloody, my uh, <laughs> hair was all over the place, you know, and I finally beat him, and the crowd went nuts. I was like, dude, that's what I want to give. That's why I have this connection with these hardcore fans, because they want what I want to give them, and it works. And bam, I just it was such a good fit for me. But to answer your question about the thumbs, during this time I was a heel. I came in as a heel because Sabu was like God there, and I was wrestling against him. Mm-hmm. And uh, they'd be Sabu, Sabu, and then I'd do some jumping, spinning kick, bam, something. I'd say, what? Oh, don't you mean? And I'd point my thumbs at myself, you know, yeah. RVD. I had no idea that I was being so original that I was creating uh, a taunt <laughs> that no one else can do without doing the RVD thumbs until uh, I went, I returned to Japan. I can't remember what company it was for, but I was outside of the, uh, the Budokan and we were going up alongside the, the big line of Japanese fans and the bus was pulling up um, along the fans to, to get to the arena. And I was looking out the window, waving at some fans and they started doing the thumbs to me. And I go, Oh, that's my move. <laughs> I had no idea that that represented RVD till that moment. Did you get a great, uh, I mean, obviously in ECW, you're one of the top stars, uh, getting huge reactions. Did you get a lot of uh, great reactions in All Japan as well? Were people really getting behind you there? Yeah, they always did. Um, And then it was a growing thing. You know, I got to a point where I reached what the Japanese fans said was a senpai. And that was when when I returned, when I returned with WWE. And that was... I think that might even, no, that wouldn't have been. But that was a big show. It was at the Budokan. Uh, I got to put over Luther Reigns, which was awesome to return. return and, <laughs> but, um, 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, I started out, you know, really green and had to prove myself. And like, so the wrestlers like uh, Kawada and uh, some of those guys, they would just kick the crap out yeah, of me. Tough guys. But, yeah, you know, and, and I had to learn to give it back, you know, and to take it. And I understood that's the way they wanted it, you know. And um, but you know, first I had a kimono, which they wear in their bathroom or something, and I'm wearing it out to the ring, like, because I think it looks like a karate gi, you know, and I got a uh, a black belt uh, t- tied around this um, bathrobe coming out to the ring barefoot, saying I'm a martial artist, so, and I'm just a, a green 22-year-old kid, so, yeah, you know, I was pretty much asking for them to kick the crap out of me <laughs> and, uh, and to really test me, and, and, and the fans, you know, really took to me. I was the only guy in all Japan that was, you know, Obviously, the only guy doing backflips off the guardrail. Uh, right. but, he, but even, but even you know that style at all, they weren't really doing it. And then I, I helped, I think, um, influence a lot of the the young boys. They all they all started um, um, patterning after my style, diving to the floor, uh, doing you know moves that made the crowd go ooh. Because mm-hmm. everyone else was, a, they were all really, there were some really really big guys. Um, in that company, and and then there was some some in between, but um, the the and then and then of course when I wouldn't be on a tour, and they'd do a tour without me, then I would hear the young boys are stealing my moves. Well, and that's the way that it always was in Japan, especially for all Japan, because that was a big man's territory. Like you said, there there was much more just kind of kicking and punching and power bombs on your head rather than really cool, nice aerial type moves. Yeah. Yeah, so I helped kind of, I think, bring that to all Japan. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I mean, I but definitely, you know, I stood out, and uh, the fans always took to me in a in a growing way. Um, and you know, I, I love when I get a chance to go back there and see the fans. Who uh, who came up with the name Rob Van Dam? Ron Slinker. Okay, because you look like Van Dam, or because you do a lot of kicks. Yeah, um, I I think it's probably um, the, the looks, and it, and I was 21. Uh, at this time when I went to Florida to wrestle. Um, so this was really early in my career, uh, 90, 92, and uh, is it 92 or 91? I think it's 92. Um, anyway, uh, I'd finished up at uh, USWA. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it's 91. Yeah, I turned 21 in Jamaica on a tour with Ron Slinker, uh, just just weeks into being crowned Mr. Rob Van Dam, so I went down there, and at that time of my career, I was taught by Sheik and Sabu, it's it's you know get out there, get booked as much as you can, learn as much as you can. Um, whereas other guys that were like, I've been told I should be a wrestler because I have a cool look or I have a cool name. I was told that doesn't matter, so you could call me whatever every night. The Sheik uh, would book me as uh, uh, different formations of my shoot last name, um, or Rod Zad or uh, Robbie Z I wrestled as, or the Polish Prince. He always wanted to make me Polish. I was like, come on, man, come on, Sheik. He said, you know how much money I made with Igor? Or Igor or whatever. <laughs> the mighty Igor. <laughs> um, but uh, that was, uh, um, it was during that time. So, you know, Slinker said, uh, you're Rob Von Dom. I was like, all right, cool. And it stuck. <laughs> uh, it's much better than the Polish prince, I'd have to say. Uh, I was like, man, I want people to like me. I got dimples. I'm good looking. I want to get the girls, you know, and look at Igor. Or, you know, he's, he's a big, big hunchback guy. And I'm like, how do you think what, you want to associate me with that and make money? But not that I argued with him, but I was always like, oh, man. But yeah, you could have, I was uh, El Snow 
Uh, I worked for El Snow at that time. So my first few matches, me and uh, Dango were the Flying Tigers. It, it was all. It was nice. just about getting, It was about getting work and learning. Rob Van Dam, RVD, one of a kind. Too much to talk about to limit to just one conversation. So we'll pick it back up with Rob on Friday. Yeah, thank God it's Friday. You know the drill. We're not done yet. We got more. I'm still going to be taking your phone calls and answering your questions today. So keep an eye on the Twitter so you don't miss your chance to call in at Talk is Jericho. That's coming up soon. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Talk is Jericho. All right, it's time to go to the phones. As always, I posted the number on the Twitter at Talk is Jericho. You never know when your chance will come to call in and ask whatever you want to ask. And starting it off, we got Ruben calling from Los Angeles, California. What's going on, Ruben? Hey, Chris. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How about yourself? Doing good, man. A huge, a huge fan of the show and, and a uh, huge fan of you personally. Thanks, man. Uh, so very, very excited to talk to you. Uh, real quickly, um, you know, I want to know, you know, obviously everyone knows you as, you know, Y2J, Chris Jericho, you know, the Ayatollah of Rock and Roll and all that stuff. You know, but since kind of, you know, dipping in and out of WWE, you know, you've done a lot, you know, with Fozzie, Dancing with the Stars, you've hosted a couple of TV shows, uh-huh. uh, you know, now you're doing a podcast. You know, what do you want to be known as outside of just a wrestler? Well, I mean, I think over the last, geez, probably the last six or seven years, I mean, I've always, I've always thought of myself as an entertainer first. Uh, wrestler second, you know, that, that's how I kind of made it into the business in the first place was cause I, I, you know, I knew I would never be the biggest guy on the show, but I could have the biggest character and the biggest personality and the biggest charisma. So I always looked at it from that, uh, viewpoint of, of being a character. So, um, Yes, and obviously most people know me first and foremost from wrestling, but over the last three or four years, it's been less wrestling and, you know, more Fozzie and, like you said, the outside projects and stuff. And I don't really care how people remember me as long as they remember me as somebody that entertained them, uh, whether it's wrestling or music or they enjoy my book or they enjoy this show or, you know, all the TV stuff that I've done, the acting stuff that I've done. I, I think in this day and age, the idea is to brand yourself as much as possible so that you uh, can appeal to, to more people. And you don't have to be stuck in a, in a box like you used to you know, years ago. I am Chris Jericho. I do a lot of different things, and I'm always going to do a lot of different things, and I always have done a lot of different things. And I think that's one of the reasons why I've had the longevity that I have and why I have such a, a great and loyal fan base that follow me to all the different things that I do because they know if my name is on it that they're probably going to be entertained. Mm, got you. Got you. Yeah, so that's that's basically it. It's Chris Jericho, the brand. I just want to be remembered as someone that entertains you, man. Do I entertain you, Ruben? Huh? Do I entertain you? you? Do, very much. Huh? Very much. <laughs> cool, I love, man. You know, I, what? I love everything that you've done so far. You know, I mean, I've read both your books, and I'm excited for your next book. Thanks for listening, dude. No problem. Thank you, man. And next on the line, we have Suwada calling from Canada, London, Ontario, to be exact. Hello. Hi. How you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I am doing amazing. How is it up there? Is it cold in London right now? 
Oh, yeah, there's snow. <laughs> Welcome to Canada, right? What's your question, yeah. Sawada? What would you like to know? Um, I, I know you have a matching tattoo with M Shadows, and I was wondering if you would ever get one with Sin Yates, and what would it be? Well, the reason why Shadows and I have one is because we became friends a few years ago and got to become really cool friends because we both like this kind of obscure German power metal band called Halloween. So uh, I think one day we were hanging. I was like, dude, let's get Halloween tattoos. So he came and saw our, our, our Fozzie show when we played the Roxy in L.A. and then brought his tattoo artist. So afterwards in the dressing room, we got the, uh, the matching <laughs> Halloween pumpkins. And with Gates, I'm not sure what we'd get. We, we always uh, we like having a good time, maybe a, a Grey Goose bottle tattooed on there somewhere or uh, maybe some kind of 70s disco tattoo. We always talk about that. About <laughs> Actually, his dad played guitar on the, on the song Car Wash. So whenever I hear Car Wash, yeah, I always uh, call him up. So maybe we get some kind of a Car Wash tattoo. Maybe a, a car made out of a Grey Goose bottle getting washed. That would kind of sum up the, uh, the relationships that we have. But the funny thing about the Avenge guys is they're running out of space to get tattooed. Like I had this whole arm to choose from, and Shad's had this little weak corner on kind of his forearm. And we were running out of time, and, and mine took a little while. And then his, the guy just he went like, got it done. I guess when you have 10,000 tattoos, one more really isn't going to make much of a difference. So there you go. Now, if you could have a, 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 t- a tattoo with Sinister Gaze, what would you get? Oh my gosh! I do not know a That's death really bat, good. maybe a death bat with uh, with a top with the, with his face on it, kind of or something. <laughs> maybe or maybe just um, music notes or something, something simple. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> you have to think about that because you never know. You might one day get the chance to get a tattoo with Sin Gates. And you need to have an idea. So, thank you so much for listening to the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for calling in. No problem. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for hitting that download button and linking to Amazon through the Talk is Jericho page at podcastone.com. Every time you do your shopping that way, Amazon kicks back a little cash to the show so I can keep bringing you the Pot of Thunder twice a week for free. I mean, we got lots of costs, long-distance calls, uh, headphones, I got headphones on here. I got a windscreen on the microphone. These things aren't cheap. You need to pay for them somehow. So when you go to Amazon through the Talk is Jericho page, you do your little part. If you like what you're hearing, as a matter of fact, tell your friends about us. Tell them to check out the show. Tell them to never miss this show every Wednesday Every Friday, you can even hit that subscribe button at iTunes so you never miss an episode. These things are coming at you quickly. Boom, bam, boom. If you subscribe, it'll show up on your on your device every single time we go live. So coming up on Friday, part two of my amazing conversation with Rob Van Dam. Looking forward to that. So you stay cool, stay hungry, stay hard. God bless you all. We'll see you on Friday. Yeah, boy. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. Daddy, where do babies come from? Uh, well, uh... Honey? Mommy went to the store. Oh, well, you see, um... Well, there's a mommy and a daddy, right? Right. 
and see when they call Geico,、uh, they could save a bunch of money on car insurance. Oh, really? And that makes them happy? Yes, that makes them very happy. That's good. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we could have this talk, Sunshine. <laughs> Geico, because saving 15 percent or more on car insurance is always a great answer. You're listening to Love Advice with Leanne. Caller, you're on the air.、Uh, hi, Leanne. Longtime listener, first-time caller. <laughs> Why, in your professional opinion, do you never take my calls off the air? Is this Carl? Yep, it's Carl. I mean, we had a few dates. Everything was great. I thought.、Uh... Well, you know, when you switch to Geico, you could save a lot of money on car insurance. Okay, awesome. You should call them. I will. Geico, because saving fifteen percent or more on car insurance is always a great answer. Syria peace talks. I'm Ben Thomas with an AP News Minute. Syrian rebels have rejected peace talks being proposed by Russia. They're accusing Moscow of failing to pressure its ally, President Bashar Assad, to end the conflict. Christmas may be over, but the shopping isn't. Hazel Ginn was at Macy's Herald Square in New York today. It's not too bad.、Um, even we went up to the ninth floor, and we managed to get in a queue of about four deep. So not bad. Yeah, and we went to another one, and it was only a couple. So we kind of timed it well, I think. America's research group, which focuses on consumer behavior, projects holiday sales up about five percent this year. Harley Davidson is placing a renewed emphasis on teaching people to ride as part of its efforts to attract more customers. The company is expanding the number of dealerships with a Harley Riding Academy. The move comes as the industry grapples with years of declining sales and an aging customer base. I'm Ben Thomas. Have major life expenses? Using a credit card can cost you an arm and a leg in interest and fees. Break up with bad credit card debt and check out a SoFi personal loan. With low fixed interest rates and absolutely no fees, a personal loan could be a great way to consolidate your hard-to-pay-off, high-interest credit card debt. A SoFi personal loan can also be used for home improvement projects, weddings, travel, moving costs, emergency expenses, whatever life throws your way. With funding ranging from five thousand to one hundred thousand dollars, with a single fixed monthly payment and no fees, a SoFi personal loan is simply a smarter way to pay compared to high-interest credit cards. View your rate in 60 seconds without affecting your credit score at sofi.com/podcast. That's sofi.com/podcast, and get your money right. Loans originated by SoFi Bank NA, member FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. NMLS 69689689. It used to be hard to find the exact auto parts you needed, and that meant spending a lot of time at swap meets. It's a different game now when you can order exactly what you need from eBay Motors. They have 122 million parts, so you can always find the right fitment. Spend less time searching and more time building with the eBay Motors app, or visit eBayMotors.com. Let's ride.